0: In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with Andre Perry. Andre is an essayist and arts advocate. He received his MFA from the University of Iowa's nonfiction writing program, and his work has appeared in The Believer, Catapult, and other journals. He co-founded Iowa City's Mission Creek Festival, one of my absolute favorite events. It's a celebration of music and literature, as well as the multidisciplinary festival of the creative process, Witching Hour. He currently serves as the Executive Director of the Englert Theater at Iowa City. Andre and I talk about creativity and collaboration in the context of music, writing, festival curation, civic engagement, and bold capital campaigns. We discuss Andre's personal journey from growing up overseas and on the East Coast, as well as living in San Francisco before moving to Iowa City to attend the workshop. I really appreciated Andre's insights and passion for making the world a better, more equitable, and creative place. Thanks to Andre for joining me. I hope you enjoy the episode. Andre, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the IO Idea podcast. Thanks so much for making the time. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you uh, tell me a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, So I'm Andre. Uh, I'm a citizen of Iowa City, I've been here for just about 15 years now. And uh, I'm originally from the East Coast and spent some time on the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, but have been uh, settled here in the Iowa City area for quite a while now and have made this place my home. And so I do all sorts of things. You know, Um, I'm really focused. I think if you get to my core at this current phase of my life, it's all about how can I help facilitate the making of art for other people and how can I also make art myself and that facilitation part of helping other people make art is all about how can we better create community through art how can we better express ourselves through art um, those those are the real themes that are that are driving me uh, for obvious reasons there's just so many positive effects when we come together as a tighter community um, especially in times of, of great divide so um, that's who I am and maybe that was more of a spiritual answer than uh, anything actual uh, as to what I do on a daily basis but I work in downtown Iowa City at this place called the Englert Theater and uh, I'm also a writer uh, and kind of on hi- hiatus musician and uh and a family man and our family lives in lives in iowa city
0: thanks so much so yeah so you you're wearing so many different hats is it hard to keep them straight from day to day or do they all blend Uh, kind of in a, a a nice kind of synergistic way
1: uh i i'm lucky right now that i think a lot of the projects i'm i'm working on are at least parallel to each other or in conversation with each other So uh, the split is not so difficult in terms of knowing where I am, but it's uh, sometimes I think the tension comes in when it comes to applying time and energy. And as you know, when you're balancing your family and your work and your other projects, uh, you always got to figure out where the priority is um, and and, and find a way to make it work. And the priority is always the family, so it's fighting between everything else.
0: Can you, can you, uh, tell me kind of early in your personal journey, your interest in art and maybe did one come first kind of the, was it writing? Was it music? Was it, you know, the festival curation, but what, what grabbed your, your attention when you were young?
1: Yeah. I mean, as a kid, I, I started writing pretty early on. Um, my mom and I would do poetry and, uh, I started writing short stories in seventh grade. We traveled a lot as when I was young, my parents worked for the government and the foreign service. And so I really remember clearly living in Zambia and Southern Africa. It's a beautiful country um, and one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And we would just be in our house like listening to music. Uh, we listen to like Prince's 1999 a lot. And we would get these like, Betamax video cassettes of films from the States uh, sent to us or like traded between other international workers. And uh, we would just like sit at home and just like watch these beautiful films that were mostly from the seventies, but that was like a high time for American films. So um, that's, I think that's just like where I got where I just started to like feel it like this, like cross cut of like my mom reading to me, me learning how to read listening to Prince with my brother and then watching these amazing films, like, you know, like watch like Apocalypse Now, like these are like really just like visually rich cinematic pieces of art. Uh, I think that's where I got, I got the hooks. And from there it just kind of developed and developed into my teenage years, you know, middle school and the high school and then to college and then, and then into being grown up.
0: Awesome. So when did you return to the States?
1: Uh, we were, in and out a lot. Uh, We got back to the States from Southern Africa when I was in fourth grade. And then we went over again. Uh, We were in France. I was in France for two years, um, which was mind blowing and amazing. Uh, And came back to the States after that. And then I went to school and my parents uh, were over in the Central Africa Republic for a little while and then War broke out, as we all know, and they came back and then we were in Madagascar. Um, So, yeah, it's it's been back and forth. And at some point I was in California and now I'm here. Uh, But the point being, you know, the travel has been a big part of our lives. And both my parents um, spent a lot of time on the continent of Africa, uh, particularly in Southern Africa, but not exclusively. And so uh, I think a lot of my worldview was shaped by... Being in that climate during my like young formative years before really identifying with America, and the United States, um, which I think for me is a gift, particularly as a black person in the United States, as a black American. Um, like I, we we moved to from Zambia to Zimbabwe, and it, I think it was 1983, maybe 19, maybe 1985, and this is just like about five or six years after that country had won its independence from the English-descended Rhodesians. And so to be in like the mix of a country that was, you know, embracing its freedom, trying to understand who they were as people. And then you've got these Rhodesians who no longer feel English and they had to give up this land that they colonized. And so there's this wonderful tension there. Um, To just be in that was just like so real and I think um just, just had such a great effect on me on just the importance of individual and communal freedom and in the importance of or the opportunity of what happens when you can bring two people, one who were oppressed and the oppressor and the roles have been switched. How can you turn that into a positive outcome? It obviously did not become a positive outcome. Uh, and it's still creating problems, uh, but I don't know that that's kind of what I think guided me as, as, a, as a young person was just being in this atmosphere where I was an outsider and understanding what freedom meant. And then I came back to the States and understood in much more complex
0: ways what illusion. From your, your discussion of you know, American films and, and listening to print, you know, just staying in touch, just putting that in a context where such a different era where now it wouldn't be that hard, right? With internet to be able to you know stream and and see these things but when there there's limited connection I, you know i still think back to my youth how how friends of mine how we would get a hold of new music and it was a there was quite a hunting process to it so i'm really just fascinated on on how you were getting that but uh when you mentioned having prints as part of that that fits for me now just all the different music and things that you pull together and kind of all the you know the multi-talents of prints that, that seems to be like a, a, a really good uh, musical foundation to have wanted to ask you about um some of the the elements in in your writing too and and race and kind of just jump into book you released last year some of us are very hungry now I'd like to talk to you about a few, few things from that, uh, from a, uh, both a creative process and uh, just help me understand, like walk me through how that process worked for you. Cause it, I love the book uh, and encourage anybody that's listening to, to get it. But can you, even just the start, can you walk me through where the title came from?
1: Yes. So the title is from a Leonard Cohen song, bunch of lonesome heroes from Songs from a Room. But classic Winter Cohen song, maybe from like 69 or like 70, but way back there. And um, it's a really cool song, but when he says that line, uh, he's able to intonate it in such a way that there's such desperation and longing that even if you didn't know the words, you would understand the emotion and the energy of what this singer of this character in a song is trying to convey. And that feeling as conveyed by his voice in that moment in that song was something that I felt ran through the subtext of the book overall and thus
0: made for an appropriate title. Cool. So you didn't necessarily have the title from the start then.
1: I didn't have it from the start, but I had it before it was done. If that makes sense. Yep.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or at least the way I'm processing it is that you, you started to see some of these these themes that were were tying the essays and letters together and and that seemed to be able to put a, a solid frame on it. Yeah. Um
1: I think I was maybe into the second or third draft, but there was a it was starting to come together after I'd finished one major draft of it and had solicited and gotten some really fantastic feedback and I began to see the vision of basically close to the, the version or the structure that it's in today or the final version that it's in. Um, and that's when I think I believe the title came and uh, and a lot of other things came as well.
0: Thinking about what, so some of the themes in, in the book, we got race and masculinity are probably two big themes in there. And I'm just wondering about you reflecting on what you produced, given that this was before a lot of the, the current upheaval that we're, we're seeing in the country and, you know, more, more emphasis on uh, kind of, you know, systemic and systematic racism and also things of toxic masculinity. It, it, it seems like you were hitting on some really important themes that are only getting reinforced now, but I'm curious on how, if, if you're even reflecting on, on what you did, or as an artist, once you do something, is that behind you, but just kind of curious on how the current state might even be shaping or reshaping your reflection on, on the book.
1: I, I think an important thing for us to acknowledge about the current state and to be clear, you know, there's a lot of, reignition of the the fight for civil rights, it seems, is what we're going through right now with the deaths of so many, the public deaths of so many black people, even in just 2020, in such unimaginable ways, at the hands of the law, at the hands of just citizens at large. Um, That's what we're going through, at the same time, that is totally in line with everything that's been happening for hundreds of years so it's not as if George Floyd video goes live and protests occur an awakening occurs for different people from different perspectives it's not as if that was new that is just a repeat you know it's literally the same behavior or the same oppression occurring And it's just visible in a different way. And as a friend of mine put it, it was just maybe so inarguable, the just the visual of his murder and his death, that it made it difficult for people to have any questions. But at the same time, uh, it's a failure of us overall as a culture to not understand that this is this has been the life of black people and people of color in this country for forever, you know, since before it was a country. And so I don't know, it's difficult. Yes. You know, like, yeah, it's a moment and it's an important moment and we have to find as much justice, as much equality and as much equity in the moment as we can, but not for a second pretend as if, this moment is day one right when it's like we're hundreds of years in the in, in into this battle right so yeah i don't know i don't know
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so one of the, one of the things that i was thinking about too with 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 your book in this moment as as you said i I feel like you know a couple other places that i've seen it's it's not that the the system or the behavior is new the 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 novel thing is that the cameras are on right that because even even thinking about you know George floyd as as something very public, if that wasn't recorded by somebody even if we backed up fifteen years where everybody's not carrying a phone with a camera in their pocket, how much might we not see, and how much don't we see? Still, but that's, that was an, uh, you know, an, uh, an important thing too. It's just, as you said, it's been going on for, it's not new. It's not day one. So I appreciate that. Uh, I might, one of the, oh, go ahead.
1: I might even argue that the camera has been on. I mean, all of us, m- most of us grew up with some sort of visual record of the civil rights movement. You know, and maybe some of the pictures that we carry in our voice or carry in our heads are folks like John Lewis or folks like Dr. King at you know on the Mall in Washington. Uh, but we also carry the picture of Emmett Till in a casket. We carry the picture of innumerable photos of literally people watching lynchings you know, across the country. Like those are photographs captured, people smiling or, you know, feeling that the beating or the death of someone is, is the right thing to be happening, almost attending to, you know, attending that, attending that event as if it's like a public engagement, like a parade or a festival. And I would say there's so much pain in watching that Floyd video. And there's, I would say, equal amounts of pain that we've seen before in photographs and videos that carried from you know you know 60 70 years ago so and it goes on before that so I yeah I I understand that something has sparked us in this moment at this time you know how much does the pandemic have to do with it I don't know I'm sure someone will write and people will study this when you and I are a little bit older um but it's just like at no moment can we pretend that like we're in a new place in terms of the actions of the culture yep you know we just can't pretend that and so like i don't know if there's any i don't know if there's any getting around around that we just got to be like damn we missed it let's not miss it now
0: thank you digging into into the the book a little bit more, I'm just curious from your your perspective as an artist and creator so a lot of positive reviews on the book and one one specifically there was a, a I thought a very powerful review from NPR and described uh, your your work described some of us are very hungry now is uh, writing beautifully about ugly events and feelings and it, one of the things I really appreciated in, in in my perception of what you were doing was this vulnerability that you presented in it. uh, I just thought was, was really powerful. I'm curious that when you read a review, does it matter to you as an artist? I imagine as a human that like, it's always nice to have good feedback, but as an artist or creator, do you, do you care that much about, about reviews or press?
1: Before the book came out, a writer friend of mine who's much more famous <laughs> yes. uh, had sent some notes about how to deal with putting out a book, and uh, they one of the things they had included was just like never read your reviews, like never go to Amazon or like Goodreads or any of the things that exist. Like it, it, they basically were like nothing good can come out of it. <laughs> like you think you think it can, um, but. Despite that, I have, you know, been aware of some of the reviews that have come through and and publishers been kind enough to, you know, kind of ping me when they see something good. Uh, so it's it's always great, I think, if you feel seen in a review, whether it's critical or, you know, really positive about the reaction to the book. But if the writer and the reviewer really if you really feel like they're engaging in a conversation with your work, that's like the best you can get and obviously it's probably even better if they are like I I am having a conversation with this work and I like that conversation that I'm having that that does feel good I mean there's no way around it but just writers who like really are you know reviewers slash writers who really think about your work like that's good because even when it's critical it can also spark a conversation in me as the writer as the artist and affect how I'm thinking about the text in hand and, and, and future texts.
0: Thanks. I want to dive into some other, other roles or hats that you're wearing. So you, you kind of said, uh, I, and forgive me I, at the beginning, I think you said kind of on a hiatus as a musician, but how did you get into music?
1: Um, well, we can go back to the Prince 1999 <laughs> record right. and, and start there. Uh, just been so deep into music my whole life as a, as a passionate listener and I think a critical listener. Um, very interested from a lyrical as well as like a textural and atmospheric standpoint. I just kind of love it all. Um, in terms of playing music, uh, I think I really started to think about doing it when I was wrapping up college, and then when I moved to San Francisco in 2000, uh, that's where I went all the way in and and really started playing. Uh, and, and just got involved in a bunch of different bands and just kind of went from there. So there, there was something like really, really important to me. I think I always, as I got older, I, I knew that I really wanted to play in a band because there's something about that collaboration with a few other people toward the act of creating something that might be engaged in by another set of people. Uh, that's really interesting. And just the idea of making a record was really important to me, the idea of like writing songs, learning the songs, arranging the songs for recording and actually pressing them, you know, to tape or to the digital sphere. So that that was with me and, and, and I pursued it and, and I got it and I've been getting it. <laughs> and uh, I just happen to be yeah. on a little bit of hiatus right now as I um, put a lot of focus in the last, you know, 15 months or so in, in t- into the book project. What's your uh,
0: instrument of choice?
1: Uh, I most frequently play the keyboards and that's where I think I've been seen live playing shows the most. Uh, I used to be, when I was much younger, like really deep into exploring all sorts of synthesizers and just really getting into the weirdness of sounds that could be made with keyboards and synths, uh, lots of pedals. As I got older, I think I really wanted to simplify a little bit. Um, I also play guitar. much more as a a writing instrument than than a performative one uh, in a live setting. And so, yeah, and and drum machines and stuff like that. I've been in in different bands that have necessitated different sorts of focuses on instruments. Uh, My most enduring project is this band called The Lonely Hearts, which is kind of like a post-apocalyptic or dystopian folk band, uh, which deals a lot with songwriting, a lot with texture. Um, but that's been maybe more simple on the instrumentation front, but the band before that data gun, um, was, was way into like the exploration of the weirdest and, uh, uh, most out there available textures at our fingertips.
0: As a musician during time of pandemic, are you finding, uh, go-to albums like from your past to, to provide comfort or are you continuing to explore listening to new voices?
1: It's always both and it depends which device is in play. Um, if I'm listening to a record, you know, I tend to, I think, listen to things that are from the archive. Um, and if I'm listening, I, I use titles, my streaming service, If I'm listening to title. It tends to be much newer material. Um, and so I usually find a good balance between those two, those two worlds. There's, I think it's a real different process, like sitting and listening to a record, especially if you're a parent, you know, and you, you, you really only might get one side, right? Of peace before you're pulled <laughs> off into a different direction. So I really like that because I'm like, all right, like, let's see what, let's see what's happening with the 17 minutes of of this album or the 20 minutes of this album and, that's all I have for today, you know like and and'll and I'll come back to it another time, um whereas like where when when I'm streaming music, I'm usually like working on something, I'm at my laptop or you know computer and and doing stuff so I can get a little bit deeper and, and can listen to much many more tracks than than one side of a record um but yeah i'm I'm always looking for new stuff uh I, I mean that digs into. Part of my job is, you know, I I program a lot or work with programming teams, and so I'm just like always listening to music and new tracks um, from a professional angle in terms of just understanding what's in the field, um, but also balancing that with just trying to understand new sounds and and what people are up to and and hear how they're expressing.
0: Thanks. Digging in a little bit on uh, kind of the collaboration, you know, when in band projects. What is it that uh, I don't know, either inspires you or that you enjoy about that that type of collaboration, where writing might seem like more of a an individual or kind of solo uh, practice? I know you, there's still collaboration with you know publishers and editors to to get that piece out in the public, but what is it that you like about collaborating in a band setting?
1: Well, I think the question of a band is, especially if you're really sharing songwriting or really working closely together is is even if you have a real distinct aesthetic perspective and voice you wonder if it's worth the pain intention of working with friends or not friends to make something that's potentially going to be better than what you would do on your own and different and to open up a new world and what you can do on your own Uh, that's the allure of music collaboration for me is like what happens when you get different aesthetic voices in the room and to me there's got to be a balance of empathy between all the players in the room as well as a little bit of tension because you know you will write things and everyone's got to let something go at some point which is really difficult when you're composing songs or, or, or different movements of a piece but you hope you get through that moment of tension, and then you play a show or you put something down on on tape, and you're like, "Wow! Like actually, that collaboration created something way better than I would have ever done on my own." And sometimes maybe it's not even better. Like maybe it's not the better song, but it's like a deeper song because it's it's ex- more expansive
0: of the world and not such a singular view. Thank you and now now I do want to talk about because uh, something near and dear to me to is the the work that you and your teams do with some of the festivals in town uh mission creek witching hour uh and like you said you you know you have to be on the lookout for for new music and uh for for me uh as you know as as a de- somebody that used to you know, prior prior to being married prior to fatherhood there were there wasn't really a limit to going to shows, right? It was, uh, but, you know, as to get married and have more responsibilities and kids and, you know, you really have to you know calculate when you can get out or where you might want to spend that, that concert chip, so to speak. Um, so one of the things that's been super valuable to me, uh, with, uh, Mission Creek is I just think it's a beautifully curated festival and, it for me it's like this mark of quality it's like okay i haven't heard of that band but let me go dig in and it's been super helpful for me on the the exploring side of music for myself do you mind walking me through what what it looks like to 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 curate and bring to bear you know here's the artists we're going with here's what we're looking for here's how we got to get schedules lined up but if you don't mind walking me through that process a little bit of both both selection and then actually you know kind of bringing a, a, an incredible festival together.
1: Sure. I mean, I can talk about what it was like before the pandemic and maybe I, I can come on in a year and tell you yes. what it was like.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. It's such a sore area too, right? I mean, and, and and we can dig into that too, just with, yeah. And I do want to talk to you about that as well, because I, you know one of the things I'm noticing during pandemic is people are finding solace and refuge in the arts. And the hardest thing for me is just, where Where are those public spaces and collaboration spaces gonna going to be? Um, so, I don't know if you want to switch gears and talk more about the kind of the pressing needs or kind of walk through when it's when it's not a pandemic, how you guys are able to 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 curate and pull off a festival.
1: Well, here's what Mission Creek looked like in the before times.
0: Uh, not
1: unlike a band. Uh, it's a pretty collaborative process in terms of there being a programming team. And uh, I've increasingly been trying to get myself a little bit further out of the center or out of the middle of the room in terms of bro- booking it. But there's a lot of different tastes that come into it. Uh, and our, our team for the last few years included um, Chris Wiersma, who is one of our producers and uh, runs the Feed Me Weird Things series. And many years ago was the manager of Picador, which is now Gabe's. And has like a real deep ear for, I think, less heard music for the avant-garde, for experimental, um, but also for um, really interesting music that's crossing over to to bigger audiences. And you know, he was bringing one vibe or several vibes. Uh, there's me who, I think, is, you know, very much into a lot of things that fall under independent music, whether it's rock or rap or electronic music or something else. Um, and maybe sometimes I lean to the more popular, sometimes I lean to like the truly avant-garde. Uh, and then Brian Johannesson, who works for Dead Coast uh, Presents and has done a lot of stuff with Big Grove, you know, brings more of like, I think like a songwriter and I hate, hate to use it in this sense, but like maybe Americana or more, Nashville influenced uh, styles of music, and then Rachel Yoder, sort of literary director for several years, and you know she mainly was focused on the literary side of things, but also we were we were all in conversation, so we all kind of affect each other as we thought about the the full slate of a program that we do, and the person who's been kind of coming up is uh, is a woman named Savannah Lane who just graduated from the UI. She was uh, the director of SCOPE and and their talent buyer for several years. And so um, she's been bringing in just like a different sort of voice as well. And so all of us are just trying to like be part of a conversation that gets us to a lineup that represents the values of the festival, which are to celebrate and recognize independent voices from across the spectrum. Uh, And independent voices can be artists who have really just been doing their thing for several years and maybe are even famous, but they've always been doing their thing. Um, or it could be um, artists who are generally marginalized either because of discriminatory practices, you know, folks from uh, the black scene or people of color, people from the queer scenes, like we, we wanna make sure that there's a space in our community for all of the voices that might not get captured through all the other programming that's that's going down. So I know that was long-winded and maybe a little bit rambly,
0: but that's generally how it goes down. And and then, I,
1: I mean, more specific.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm, and then I'm curious too, is how do you, how do you make the selections too? So you, I, I imagine that, you know, people are bringing all these, these different perspectives for a very rich festival. And then how do you, how do you make some of the choices? I imagine some might just be even like, you know, reaching out and, and an artist's schedule, you know, just, just a bare pragmatic thing like that. But how do you make the decisions then who, who ultimately ends up on the lineup?
1: Yeah, there's some structural guidelines that I think help, you know, so it's not just like this big abyss. Um, You know, there's the length of the festival, the number of days there's the venues that we're engaged with and just like to some degree, the number of slots are available. Mm -hmm. So that's actually very helpful. Um, And there's money, you know, there's a limited budget. So like, That's also helpful. Um, And then in terms of like determining who's going to fill those spots and how, how we pay artists is uh, it's an ongoing conversation. Like, I mean, the festival gets booked over, like each festival is getting booked over two years because I'll be at a conference or at a festival, another festival and like talking to an artist or a manager or an agent and we'll start a conversation about, an artist who might be playing the festival in two years while wrapping up the conversation about an artist who's going to play that year. Right. So it's like, it's always emotion and it's an ongoing back and forth of us sharing our vision and our goals with artists and agents and managers. And so that they then get inspired and they're like, Oh, this would be the perfect you know, person or the perfect band or writer to be part of your event this year because of the wavelength that they're on and where you guys are going. And so we're, it's like really managing the relationship between the artist and, the, and, and their representation. So they understand where we are. And sometimes they'll make recommendations and you should play and we'll make recommendations and usually both happen. And at some point you start committing to a couple of things, you know, like saying we're signing the contract. And once some of those pillars fall into place, it becomes really easy to understand what the counterpoints need to be in order to fill out a really textually diverse lineup.
0: Awesome. And how did, how did Witching Hour, because I, I see uh, it, to me, and, and I might be wrong, I, I feel like it, it it's almost like a spinoff or, or, or was kind of birthed from Mission Creek, or is it seen as something completely separate?
1: Um, Witching Hour is this weird beast that just exists in the <laughs> overall Inglard framework and no one really knows what it is, and everyone really likes it. <laughs> so uh, it, it came to be uh, through, there were a number of people who were producing events in the area who were really close with each other and wanted to do something together, and I had initially had the idea for Witching Hour, and it seemed like to be the platform to get us all in the same room. And so in that very first year as a collaboration between who've been in the Mission Creek team. Uh, some folks who were working at film scene, which if we can believe was like a new thing at that time. Uh, some of the folks who worked on Seed here, uh, Amanda West and Andy Stoll, who had produced Entrefest for a couple of years. Um, and then, yeah, I think, I think that was it. Oh, and then Little Village was in the picture too. And so we all just kind of got in the room and we're like let's do a thing and the first one was a very old school diy uh all of us were feeling a little burnout because we were booking these events that you know like you know 12 to 18 months out and the first witching hour we booked in like a couple months you know and we're like we're just going to do this thing and see what happens and so i think for us it was like just refreshing to be like let's do something have it be a little bit punk and whatever happens is what happens it doesn't have to be all like finely tuned it just has to be all about the ideas and the conversation that might be possible and so that's how witching hour started uh and of course like everything it evolves into something else um but i think the core of it exploring the unknown remains there of the core of it thinking about creative process and being very friendly to new work remains
0: yeah and that that's a, a a theme that i I feel from you and what you're do is is just how you help cultivate uh safe spaces for for new art and new voices uh, and uh every every time I've interacted with you I just you're you're you have such positive energy and it seems like you really get excited about new voices uh is that a fair take
1: uh, I'm definitely excited about new voices and and voices that haven't been heard uh that's
0: Yes, yes, that is a correct <laughs> reading of my vibe. <laughs> yeah, so I I just love I love what's going on with those those festivals. You know, one of the the themes too with with this podcast is looking at collaboration, and I think one of the things that is really interesting is uh, collaboration at scale. You know, you had mentioned film scene, but uh, what's going on with strengthen, grow, evolve campaign? Do you care to talk about that at all, or do you mind if we just like how that came came to be?
1: Yes. So um, the main organization I work for, the nonprofit, the Ingram Theater, uh, is currently uh, actually in the last phases of a capital campaign with another nonprofit called Film Scene, indie art house movie theater in town. And the whole idea of the campaign, or the the core ideas of the campaign, are yes, there's there are capital projects involved part of it's about preservation and preserving the space of the Ingler theater, which is hundred plus years old, the original film scene on the Pedmall, mall, that building's hundred plus years old, and then building something new, which is the new film scene at the Chauncey. Um, those are kind of the capital bedrocks of, of the campaign. Uh, but the other idea that was in some ways, if not more important, at least equally important is what does it look like when local nonprofits in this case, arts and culture nonprofits collaborate together to do something that's bigger than the two organizations, the organizations on their own and how can we better collaborate? And maybe we need a case study for how this works and works and doesn't work so that all of our other partners and colleagues in the cultural scene here, um, we've got something to show that can help all of us as we move forward. Uh, and and in we were thinking about this like four years or five years ago, but now it's like even more pertinent as we're going through uh, a health and economic crisis, right. in the, in the country and in our community. So um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what strength and grow evolve is. It's, it, it's all about working together to see if you can do something better than you would do on your own. And uh, I think so far we have, and one of the visions behind the campaign is this idea that, Iowa City is the greatest small city for the arts in America, um, which is obviously on some levels just like a ridiculous claim, but it's not like we were looking for a medal. It was more what kind of thing can like help bring us together rather than divide us. And I'm not even speaking for the organizations, maybe I'm speaking for myself, which is I'm really interested in what happens when Iowa City's working with Public Space One and Riverside and some of the arts and UNESCO city of lit Angler film scene all together as these as these entities that have been around and then starting to bring in these voices like the work that Fred and his crew are doing at dream city, you know, into the picture. Um, What happens when we're on the same wavelength doesn't mean we need to do everything the same. And doesn't mean we have to do everything together, but to understand that, you know we might be able to do more meet more of our mission if we're, if we're' seen as a family rather than just kind of out here hustling on our own
0: yeah, I love it uh, I know just uh, on the on the business side for me, just seeing a lot of uh, a need for increased collaboration at scale and kind of loosely connected networks uh, because if you get too too dug in basically into a rut on what you believe you are right it's hard it's hard to advance and Needing to collaborate, and so that's one of the things I love about bringing bringing some of the different art elements together. And some of the ways I'm thinking about going back to music is almost it's it's like different genres. And when you get some some really good genre crossing stuff, how much you know new things can can emerge. And I love I love that you're you're having that conversation. You're doing and putting in the hard work to make that happen. Want to want to ask you about uh, though the hell that we're in. Or may, maybe I'm just poking at an open wound. Uh, how how are things right now in in kind of time of you know pandemic and save our stages movement?
1: Um, it's certainly real uh, across the board. You know, when I go to work every day, you know, there's a, there's a lot of challenge. At think there's a lot of challenge with arts orgs and art just our city. And then our whole state, and then the whole country, um, and then there's just a lot of pain in a number of other industries. You know, it's just like I, I don't think in my lifetime I've seen such like a pan-economic and health effect at the same time hitting so many different uh, parts of our of our of our communities. Um, so yeah, it's it's real. Like uh, you know, when I think about the angler from a numbers perspective, you know, we lost you know about $400,000 of earned revenue just from March to June, just cause we didn't have shows, which is part of our model. And we're gonna lose, you know, that much as we go into the fall. And so you take a really small organization, which is $1.9 million annual budget, and you take, you shave off a million bucks from it, or, you know, like it right. puts you in a real, puts you in a, in a new place, right? Uh, so, that's just like the reality, and I don't say that to like complain or anything I'm just like that's where we're at and and so it's forcing us to kind of work on multiple levels and here are the different levels you know one of them is how do you maintain what you've got just to get through like next week and then how do you think about the future and the need for working capital to getting to the other side of this which for our industry could be like twenty twenty two so it's like okay like we got to get to the March or Q2 2022, Like, what needs to happen between now and then in terms of the organization and, and the capital that we have access or don't have access to? So big questions. And then in the third part, it's OK, you have staked the claim that you're, in theory, in quotes, an important venue and an important organization for stewarding public engagement in Iowa City area. However, you cannot have public engagements right now. So how do you meet the core tenets of your mission in a totally different space? Um, The core of our mission is to inspire and activate positive community growth. So it's also forcing us to relearn all of our skills and still deliver that mission to our community in a time when we're also dealing with these other challenges and problems, which is both terrifying and a fantastic opportunity because if we do that well what we're going to see is that we've we're doing all, all this other sorts of programming at some point the other stuff that we see comes comes back online and at that point we have to decide what is the hybrid organization that we've now become because we've been able to focus in on new avenues that if it was just a regular year and we were just having shows all the time we wouldn't have time to be thinking about this stuff like for you know i wouldn't stop because i'd just be like oh like we the festival is about to kick off. Oh, like we've got all these shows next week. Um, so we've been forced to think creatively and that's good even though it's happening in a really like difficult time. Uh, to, just so we don't lose sight, you know, as a staff and as a board, you know, we think about the key things which are, we wanna preserve the organization and the facility, right? You know, part of our job is to be the stewards of this historic theater that's downtown regardless of what the Englert does from a programming perspective. We just got to keep this historic property in Iowa City. We have to figure out how to deliver our mission to bring joy, to bring inclusivity to our community. Because despite being in a health crisis and an economic crisis, Iowa City is also in a cultural crisis where there's a big divide between the vision of what it wants to be as an inclusive town and what it actually is. And so, like, part of that's our work, and we feel we can help achieve that via our mission. And then the third piece is, how do we just sustain the people who give so much to keeping the angler alive? You know, that's the staff. Um, so those are kind of our guiding lights that, that that we think about when we're either in a real long term or what are we going to do tomorrow discussion. And we're we're in a what are we going to do tomorrow discussion because some of our fate is tied to decisions made by. The federal government uh not to suggest that we expect anything from the federal government but right. what they decide yeah. will give us really important information on what steps we take next
0: did the uh the the podcast best show ever did that come out of new things that we could do or was that already uh in in the works before the pandemic that most certainly came out of the pandemic uh and
1: being forced to create new things you know um the first thing we did is because you know we we shut down in early mid-march and then we canceled mission creek which at the time was like i mean it was clear we're like yeah we got to cancel this and we're also like this is i can't believe we're canceling mission creek and now we're like oh like that seems so pedestrian now <laughs> we're like, right, oh, right. but uh so the first thing we did was we did mission creek underground which was a series of musical and literary performances just to kind of learn cut our teeth a little bit on video and audio capture and then we designed best show ever as this way to be an ongoing communication with our community so like it is cool to share music or other forms of performance or art but it's also cool just to like talk to just like have a conversation with your community and we wanted to do something that was audio so that you didn't have to watch it everyone's down to watch stuff, but there's just like a limit. Right. Sometimes it's just nice to like listen, you know, and, and and be in your room or your office or on your walk and just like hear people engage in the conversation. So you're going to see more of that. We're just experimenting with everything now so that we can launch a new programmatic season
0: in January. Cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, one of the, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, uh, from from your role with with the angler and uh, you know, festivals and strength and grow evolve for folks that are listening, how might they help support uh, the angler or the strength and grow evolve campaign?
1: Um, multiple levels, you know. I think part of it is yeah, money makes a difference, and for strength and grow evolve. We're certainly like at the last fate, We're like literally going into the tail end of the campaigns. We're like, all right, like if you were thinking about giving to this, like please give now, so we can so we can all go home and, <laughs> and put an end to this and and honestly get out of the way because I think there's some other projects that need to happen and we just need to be mindful that we're not taking up all the artistic noise in in town. We just we just got to move on. People have been supportive. That's great. Let's get those last dollars. Let's get out. Um, and we see the campaign as Literally a singular chapter in building the greatest small city for the arts. So, you know, Public Space One still needs to do some build out uh, in, in their new space. That's on Gilbert Street. Riverside has some, I think, interesting prospects of how they're going to go into their next chapter. So, let's get out of the way so that they can use the greatest small city mantle to drive more energy and more collaborative, collaborative energy. Um, so, in terms of the organizations, them just as its own, as its own thing, you know, yes, money does help and money does really help in this time, but behind the money is what we're asking for is engage with us, uh, stay in touch with us, know what we're up to. You know, you might be someone who like really loves music or other forms of art and you just want to listen and watch the things that we're doing. That's awesome. You might be someone who's like, I don't need to hear everything you're doing, but, uh, I'm aware of the importance of the community work that you're doing. And so I just want to stay in touch. That's really important. Um, we are looking to hold on to the audience and the community members who've already been there uh, and also hoping to expand um, so that when we come back full force, uh, we're able to do better things that, than we did before.
0: Thanks. Uh, one of the things that I usually close with is talking about advice uh, with with my guests and uh, in, the, in the frame from the book steal like an artist from Austin Kleon. So he claims that when we're giving advice, we're usually talking to our younger self. Uh, But I was curious on what advice, good advice you received that helps guide you today or advice that you wish you would have had that you might be able to give to other uh, artists and creatives.
1: Um, Well, I think, you know, I might have a more canned answer for this in any other time but this is not any other time we are in these times and it's (laughs) it's so intense. So I I think I need to tailor my answer toward, yeah, like I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay rent next month or I don't know if this industry that I was involved in is going to give me a job. I don't know if I can afford to make my art anymore because I don't have my job, which was helping me do my art. So um, it's really, my advice is, Let's do what we need to do to sustain. Whether you're 22 and maybe just on your own, or maybe you're older like us and you you know you got a family to think about and kind of different sorts of responsibilities. So do do what you need to do to sustain. And uh, let's also just keep in mind what our personal missions and, and values are during this time. Um, It's a lot of things are hard about this time, but when you strip away Kind of the boom times it becomes I think, in some ways a little bit easier to focus on what are you all about and to tend to that foundation so that when things do bounce back, whether it's fifteen months from now or twenty four months from now because this one seems longer than anything I've seen in my life um, you've already really just you know cemented your foundation in the direction you want to go in, and so decisions become really easy um, while the economic pain of this current moment is greater than what I experienced um, 20 years ago uh, when I lived in San Francisco. It, there are some similarities because I I moved to San Francisco at the top, the dot com boom, yeah, and uh, yep. I was working in advertising, working at an ad house that was really connected to internet advertising, and digital marketing as people were try- just trying to figure out like what even is the internet, you know, on a, on a public sphere. There's a lot of money going into a whole slew of companies that didn't really have it figured out yet. Um, and then of course the, the confidence faltered and all the money started disappearing and, and think places were going under. And I remember being in San Francisco, the spring, summer of 2001, I just been laid off. I think I had like four or six weeks of, um, of severance pay. And uh, I was starting to collect unemployment and it was really expensive to live in San Francisco at that time, which sounds absurd because it's so expensive to live in San Francisco right now, but it was really expensive still then. And I couldn't really afford my rent without having a steady job. And so I had all these fears of like, what am I gonna do? And I'm already out here and I don't wanna go back home. And I was really diligent about looking for jobs When there weren't very many, but I—that was the period when I was like, I'm gonna take half the severance check and buy some like dope ass gear to play music on and get really serious about music, which is not something my parents were particularly excited about. (laughs) And it was making a responsible decision when you have like, you know, $1,200 rent like hanging over your head. I know that number sounds like oddly small or now than it should, but that was a lot of money in 2001. Um, and I just did that and I had some privileges that I think let things work out, but part of it was also just continuing to follow my values, think about my values. And I ended up teaching at a, at a school and got a job at a school and that I ended up working in this project where I was working in elementary school that was building into a middle school that had this amazing, just cross section of people from across San Francisco. And that became like one of the most important projects in my life while also learning how to become a musician.
0: So, um, it doesn't always work. Yeah. I appreciate that. One of the things too, I think about you know, knowing your values is it, it helps reduce a little bit of the noise of the craziness, not to diminish what people are going through, but I think it does help you keep your sanity if you remember what you're about and what you're trying to accomplish.
1: Definitely. <clears throat> Definitely. And this one's harder. Um, It's cutting deeper. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'd I'd had to leave the Bay Area, there were jobs elsewhere, you know? And like, this is just cutting across so many industries and such a great geography, not just within our country, across the world, that opportunities are slimmer. And in between that recession, which was also punctuated by another one in the middle, Mm -hmm. you know, it's become harder to live like a baseline life in America. Like I'm only like 42 or or depending how you look at it, I'm 42, wow. Or I'm only 42 (laughs) and like even within that 20 years, which went by really quickly from being a college graduate to being like a middle-aged person, so much has been stripped away from the possibility of thriving in America and it gets worse if you're black or brown. It gets worse if you like started out with a lot less to begin with, you know, like, it's just mm-hmm. like, that's sad. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that it's, it's even harder than the London <laughs> two time than two recessions ago, you know?
0: Right, right. Andre, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the, on the podcast. It, it's always a pleasure to, to talk with you. And I, I really appreciate you sharing your, your perspectives and gifts with us today.